I'm Karen Long, and you are listening to The Asterix, a production of the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards. An asterisk is a reference mark indicating an omission. Today, we are figuring out some of the holes in our knowledge with Namwali Serpel, critic, short story writer, professor, and novelist. She won an Annisfield Wolf Book Award in 2020 for her magnificent novel, The Old Drift. Welcome, Professor Serpel. Thank you. Because this is a work of fiction that is capacious and welcomes us into so many worlds and genre, we thought we would begin with the words themselves. So if you don't mind reading us three paragraphs from the Mosquito Chorus at the front of the book, we'd be grateful for that. This chorus I've read is something you came up with pretty late in the composition of the old drift, something that actually came to you in a dream, is that right? Um, not quite a dream, more like a daydream. Uh, I was on a plane um, thinking about the technology of the drone and the micro drone. And at some point in my thinking process, I realized that the insect that I wanted my micro drones to imitate was mosquitoes. And this drew together several strands of the book as it already existed. In, in a lot of ways when I'm writing, it doesn't feel like I come up with things and more that I stumble across things that are already there. And the mosquitoes made perfect sense um, and were really fun when I actually started to ventriloquize them. They make such profound sense. The Greek chorus is so ancient and the drone is so modern. And I think you told the New Yorker that you subscribe to Nabokov's idea of memory and dream being active in literature. Yes, I. a lot of the ideas that I have for fiction happen uh, in the course of dreams or daydreams which is, I think, the unconscious brain's art-making activity. Uh, there's nothing less self-conscious than a dream when it comes to creating a, a, a movie for your mind, so to speak. And I often try to take down exactly what I felt and try to reenact it in my prose for my audience. Wonderful. Well, let's hear from the mosquitoes. So I'll be reading this in what I call my Zinglish accent, which is my Zambian English accent, which I grew up speaking. Um, many of you will know the concept of code switching, which is when you speak with the accent of, of your hometown or your home state. Um, and so this is, this is the accent in which the novel is narrated uh, in my head. Miles south of Livingston's final abode, above the Victoria Falls, that he renamed for his queen. Just before the river takes its furious plunge lie the stillest waters of the Zambezi and the stilled bodies of those who dared settle there. Ah, ye oldie drifty. Over the years, it went from passage to place and eventually gave way to a grave. This is where we live, on the tip of the tongue of the air, full of secrets, black fever, 
marsh fever, tertian egg, and more than eager to squeal them. And who are we? Thin troubadours, the bare, ruinous choir, a chorus of gossipy mites. Uncanny the singing that comes from certain husks. Neither gods, nor ghosts, nor spirits, nor sprites were the effect of an elementary principle. With enough time, a swarm will evolve a conscience. Thus we've woven a worldly wily web, contrived a hive mind, if you will, spindle bodies strung in a net of space-time. Interested, humming along, we've been needling you for centuries untold, or perhaps we should say centuries told. You certainly love your stories. Your earliest tales were of animals, of course, beastly fables carved into cave walls. Well, it's time to turn the fables, we say, time for us to tell you what we know. A swarm is but a loose net of knots. We hang an elastic severalty. Our song is the same. The notes we sing, like a plaintive urhu, form a weird and coordinate harmony. Brava. Thank you. It, it makes me think of the poet Rita Stubb's observation that the words you find are poetry, the way you described water is among the best she's ever read. And I have a simple question. What makes a good sentence? You know, people talk about good sentences a lot in my uh, literary sphere. Um, people often rave about but the sentences. I'm often quite confused, <laughs> to be honest. I think part of it is because in my other world, which is as a literary critic, as a professor of English, we don't talk about sentences as good or bad. Um, we we parse them. We you know figure out the grammar, the diction, the particular choices that a person is making, the meter, the rhythm, the relation to the paragraph, to the whole, um, to the stanza. But we don't evaluate them as good or bad per se. Um, and I think in general, my tendency is to think about sentences from a neutral perspective in terms of what the sentence can do. So what can it create? What can it enact? What kind of experience does it give the reader if you're thinking about rhythm or if you're thinking about language, right? So much of what I just read to you actually is stolen from other writers, um, uncanny the sing singing that comes from certain husks, bare ruinous choir, these are illusions. And so to a certain extent, um, the content is not mine, but the way that I'm incorporating it into a sentence is the part that I consider a kind of artistry. But what I'm doing rarely am I thinking of trying to make it good or bad, I'm trying to think about, well, do I want this to, to jar? Do I want it to be mellifluous? Do I want it to surprise? Do I want it to flow, right? So a lot of it is about how I want the sentence to function, um, less like a tool and more like a color in a palette mm. when you're painting. That's so interesting. 
So you're, you're conjuring color. And with the mosquitoes, the language seems to needle us a bit like the observations. I did want it to be rhythmically erratic, the way that mosquitoes are in the air, but to be rhythmic, right? Not the way that normal prose sounds. So there's a kind of poetic feel to the mosquito sections, but it's not consistent because mm -hmm. those when they fly in the air are not, you know, they don't move in, in the dance of the bumblebee. They kind of, you know, zing around and sometimes they move in loops and sometimes they come toward you in what seems like a needling, whining, uh, irritating, hysterical, um, screech, but sometimes they waft from place to place. Um, so I wanted to give that sense of, of it being somewhat erratic, but somewhat rhythmic. And I also, as you say, I did want their, them to be a little bit annoying the way the real <laughs> are. <laughs> so that makes me think about the freight that we lay on the titles of fiction. Mm. And I have a librarian friend who adores your book and I said is there any other title and he kind of wound me down and said well of course there could be another title mm -hmm. but um your mother didn't like it is that right yeah no she she said well it sounds old and I said well it has the word old in it <laughs> <laughs> I I'm, I'm actually quite bad at titles um I think titles for me pose a challenge because I'm thinking like a writer and I'm often thinking, well, what can, what can the title evoke? What can it do? How much can it contain? What kind of rhythm does it have? When really the primary function of a title is to be informative. And you really have no idea what a book called The Old Drift is gonna be about no. until the entire thing. And so in some ways I'd say it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overly artistic and therefore non-functional title. <laughs> but it, was, it came to me through a friend uh, we went to visit Zambia together and we went on safari, which is often what we do when we bring our American friends home with us. We don't generally go on safari ourselves um, as Zambian uh, citizens, but um, when we bring our friends from abroad, they want to see the animals and so we go and see the animals. And halfway through, the Land Rover pulled into a little grove and they hopped out and they gave us tea and biscuits and they said, uh, this is the old drift, and but gave us no other information. And it was a cemetery. It was this, mm -hmm. these fallen down gravestones that marked the um, graves of a group of European settlers who had tried to create a, 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 basically a small town on the banks of the Zambezi, but then had all died of essentially malaria. Um, they, it, they were too close to the river. Um, and I thought, that what, a, what a strange um, monument to, you know, European colonialism and the missionary zeal to come and settle um, in Africa in the 19th century. And my friend said, oh, you know, you should, this is what you should call your novel which she hadn't read yet, but that she knew about Zambian history. And she's an editor. She's a wonderful um, and very smart uh, editor. And it just sort of made sense. And it started to make more and more sense as I was thinking about how time moves, about how the mistakes that our fathers and 
grandfathers and grandmothers make affect our lives. The idea of, of an error um, deriving from the Latin word for to swerve or to stray uh, or to, you know, to drift uh, from the straight line that we normally think we're going to live our lives. Uh, it all just started to come together um, and make sense for the kind of story that I wanted to tell. I love that. And let's speak a minute or two about that mistake. I went back and reread the six sentences. That's all you took to put it at the at the four waters, at the headwaters of your book. Um, when Percy M. Clark, the historical figure, makes a fever-induced, um, alcohol-induced error and snatches bald an Italian hotelier, hotelier and um, sets in motion a mistake, an injury that will find its way throughout your book. And I, the first time I read it, I wrote Gaspiesque alongside that um, paragraph, not knowing what it was, mm -hmm. but that sense of the carelessness of the people who have power. Yes. I think when we think about imperialism and colonialism, we often picture the queen. We, you know, we picture the queen of England and we picture this sense of, you know, Christianity, commerce, civilization, these great grand forces coming in um, to Africa. And we understand it to have been a form of violence. But what is very clear to me when you read the historical accounts by the colonialists, by the settlers that came, is how haphazard and how arbitrary many of their actions actually were. My, one of my favorite examples of this is that if you look at a map of Zambia, we have these kind of riverine lines uh, in our borders. We're a landlocked country with seven other countries around us. But in the um, northwest corner, it's literally a corner. It's two straight lines. And it turns out this is because, you know, the imperial nations couldn't decide where the line should go. I think it was the Portuguese and the English. And so they asked the Italian king at the time to decide for them how to draw this border line. And he just took a pencil and drew two straight lines, cutting through, you know, the landscape, cutting through, in the case of my mother, cutting through um, her village in the northeast of the country. Mm. It, the border went right through the village. And so there's this kind of, the, the, the idea that the hand of the, of the empire looks straight, but is in fact completely arbitrary and and sort of willfully in some ways um, accidental um, struck me as the as perhaps the most violent hmm. part of the colonial experience the refusal to account for other people to account for the land um, and and the kind of um, belief that even if you were not educated, even if you knew nothing about the people around you, even if you thought they were your inferiors, somehow you still had the right to this land, um, is to me the, a kind of uh, epitome of violence. That said, 
the line that went right through my mother's village, the, the joke was that the chief sent his sister over to the other side, she became the chieftainess and my mother's culture then became matriarchal, right? So there's a sense that we made lemonade out of lemons. Um, and so one thing that the novel is really trying to access is how productive and creative we can be even in as it comes out of the arbitrary violence um, of colonialism, bringing together multiple tribes, for example, in Zambia into what our first president called one Zambia, one nation. That is, you know, you could see it as a compensation as like, a, you know, a, a petty reward <laughs> for colonialism. But in fact, it was an incredible act of creation and survival that came directly out of the error that was the violence of colonialism. What that made me think as I was looking again at the old drift is of a work of nonfiction by the Israeli Ari Shavit um, called My Promised Land. Mm -hmm. And he begins that book with his Victorian era forebearers from London arriving in Palestine and looking out and seeing the Zionistic future. And his question, which animates the entire book, is how did they look out on a land with 250,000 people and see it as unoccupied? Yeah. And I thought that question had an interesting resonance with your beginning, because it's hard to begin with Percy M. Clark and his racism, his casual racism, um, and keep going. Yes, I was, you know, there was always a sense for me that this could stop readers. And I've had evidence that it has stopped some readers, but I wanted the reader to feel what I had felt when I read his memoir, Autobiography of an Old Drifter, which I picked up after deciding this would be my title and this would be the place I began my novel. I decided to do some research and there was this memoir by this man, Percy M. Clark. And as I was reading it, I thought, well, what a, what a funny and jolly character, you know, really of, of his time, a kind of 19th century, you know, um, whippersnapper of a person who wanted to make his fortunes um, a little bit like a cowboy, you know, trying to, to, to head out west and, and establish um, to settle the land. And then, you know, reading the first 40 or so pages, I came across his first use of the N-word which was surprising to me in some sense because it's a word I really associate with American racism. Mm -hmm. that have their own diction um, for the inferiority of black people. Um, but he was using it freely along with the others, uh, with the K word and with, <laughs> you know, the calling black people savages and so on and so forth. And I felt so shocked and also so betrayed. Um, Zambia, has always been, in my experience, an incredibly inclusive country. My father is a white British man who became a Zambian citizen and has spent most of his life there. 
And so being growing up in this mixed race cosmopolitan country where when the Zambian flag went up and the British flag went down in 1964, October 24th, anyone who was in the country, no matter where they were from, was automatically granted citizenship. Mm. That, right? In 64, right? This is mm -hmm. that kind of sense of inclusiveness was radical. And to have this British man, you know, from the 19th century, who I really, it's its not that I thought of him as a forefather per se, but in a sense he is because I have British heritage. And to see just, as you say, the casualness of his racism, the absolute assumption, you know, when you were um, citing that quotation about Palestine, it made me think of how in, the, in his memoir, Percy talks about being so alone, so lonely. Yes. And there are like, he had like 40 people with him helping him hunt, <laughs> but he doesn't think of them as, as company, he think of them as people. And that sort of paucity of imagination um, that the racist mind has seemed to me to be really important as a context so that people understood exactly what Zambian peoples or the people who lived in that part of the world, because it wasn't Zambia at the time, it was Northern Rhodesia, named after another British colonialist, Cecil, mm -hmm. what they were up against and how much they had to fight in order to forge a life, in order to create out of that space of violence. Um, I think people forget. I had a couple of reviews say that my depiction of Percy was stereotypical and two-dimensional, that he couldn't possibly have been that racist um, at that time, not realizing that this was a real person and that I was quoting him from his own memoir. Mm -hmm. I think we, we do a really good job of having amnesia. And I, I, I just felt like it was really important to start the novel, to give that context. So you understood everything that, that comes um, out of that. And now we'll pause for a short break. The Asterix is a project of the Cleveland Foundation to bring more readers and listeners into conversation with the best writers in English, in this case, recipients of the Annisfield Wolf Book Award. We now return to the conversation. And to your point, your uh, co-winner, Charles King, with Gods of the Upper Air, um, discussed at length the casual racism of the elites in science but he corrected me that you don't need to go back a hundred years. It's there 10 years ago. And that part of the revolution in the sciences is to bring back to the center the work that was pushed to the side because it didn't have white originators. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, because I found it so interesting, this 18 year process that gifted us the old drift began in your last year as an undergraduate at Yale with a story you were writing about a woman who couldn't stop weeping. And I thought about how apt that is for that time of life, um, perhaps the struggle to gain emotional intelligence as a new young woman out in the world. Am I reaching? No, no, I, I, I definitely um, created this character from a space of, of 
heartbreak myself. And I think what struck me at the time in giving this kind of magical realist, very Marquez influenced myth of a woman who cries all the time to my fellow undergraduates in a creative writing course was their immediate attribution um, to this woman of anything but heartbreak because she was African, because she was Zambian. And so her weeping had to be some kind of witchcraft. It had to be some kind of magic. It had to be um, a, a symbol of mother Africa weeping for her children. <laughs> and I, all I want is for you to understand that she has a broken heart, you know, and that having a broken heart feels like you're never going to stop crying so much so that your eyes will be encased in salt and your eyelashes will sew together. And so I tried to, again, replicate that experience, that rep, that uh, reading experience to a certain extent in the novel itself by having other people misinterpret Matha Mwamba's Right. Um, but something that was very clear to me very early on, uh, I was I was talking to a, a, my writing professor in my first year of graduate school. Um, so I was 22 at the time and gave presented this this uh, kind of revision of this story. And she looked up and she said, um, she's going to die, isn't she? And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, she's going to stop crying. And I knew exactly why she was going to stop crying. And I knew that it had nothing to do with the return of her lover. And so interestingly, while I do think it was a very young person's depiction of what heartbreak feels like, I also had an inkling of the emotional wisdom to realize that romantic heartbreak was not the be all and end all of life. And that in fact, there were other things that would affect this woman uh, much more deeply as she grew older. This is why we don't marry the first person we love. <laughs> well, not, not all of us do, but. <laughs> Do. That's true. Uh, thank you for telling us that. That is so, um, that's so evocative. One of the um, striking things about the perception of the old drift is that way we humans make meaning. And I'm thinking about all of the readers who decided this must have a prize. There's our own estimable jury, of course, but also the um, Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke jury, the French jury that gave it a Belletris prize, the Campbell Windham prize. And it's so interesting to think about the lens the readers are wearing, and they're all landing on the story. What do you make of that? There's I mean, it's book you can say that about um, Professor Serpel. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, I mean, obviously I'm deeply honored. And I, what, what's really wonderful, you know, for me in receiving this great diversity of prizes is that it means that I managed to capture uh, the eclecticism and diversity, both of my own 
literary inclinations, but also of my country. You know, I, I it was always a multi-genre book, even from its earliest days, as you know, with this magical realist story that I presented in as an undergrad in you know the year two thousand. Um, I knew that the daughter of this weeping woman would be a, a sex worker, and that she was going to be sort of hyper-realist in her uh, desire for money and um, her her willingness to sacrifice uh, her body in order to make sure that she never succumbed to the fate of her mother. And I knew that her son would be interested in science and would be interested in flying things. And so there was always a sense that, you know, I had a magical realist grandmother, a realist mother and a science fictional son already built into one family. And again, my readers balked at this. They kept saying, well, will the son also develop wings since he's interested <laughs> in flying things? And I said, no, he will build drones because he's, it's, he's in a different genre. And then as time went on, more and more writers, it seemed to me, were experimenting in the same sort of explicit way with genre. Genre's always been kind of messy. You know, Frankenstein isn't just a science fiction novel. It's also a, a, a Kunstler roman. It's also um, a, a, a story of philosophy. Um, but this idea that you would have chapter by chapter different genres, Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad is like that. Yes. Cloud Atlas is like that. And to a certain extent, the Gino Diaz's A Brief Wonder's Life of Oscar Wow is like that. And I thought, oh, these other people are doing what I'm doing. So it gave me this great confidence. And I was very, very glad that when I pitched the novel and sold it in 2015, my editors didn't shy from that. They didn't flinch from it. They thought they didn't re respond the way that my early readers had, which was to think, well, they can't possibly, you can't live together, have different characters in different genres in the same world. They just thought, well, this is, this is what she's doing and this is how she's doing it. And to have that recognized by awards, there's no award that exists right now for multi-genre books, but you know, but it means that the awards that do exist for books about race, books about science fiction, first books, books that are in, invested in a literary tradition could all find themselves in the kind of kaleidoscope that I was trying to create. Um, and that's a wonderful, I mean, it's, I, I can't express how honored I feel because it means that all of the different genres I was invested in received an equal amount of attention and effort from my part, you know, that I, I tried to do justice to the science fiction and the magical realism and the social realism and the historical fiction. And to have each of those components honored uh, in these various ways has been really moving to me. Um, it, it feels like I'm being seen in the round. And it also reflects what you have accomplished with the living together, the genres living together. And I loved what Dr. Gates said about your book, exploring how, an individ how individuals make a nation and nations make an individual, how they're held together or fall apart. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's, um... 
again, you know, I've been describing this as kind of a reflection of my interests and my mind. It's also very much a reflection of my nation. You know, I think all too often African countries, African literatures get thrown together and the differences between them are elided. Uh, you know, what is, what is Zambian about my book versus what is African about my book isn't necessarily evident to Western readers because they've not been given access to the specificity of different African cultural uh, forms, you know, so while you can obviously see the difference between an Italian book and a French book, you might not think there's much of a difference between a Zambian book and a Nigerian book, but there is right? oh. <laughs> a huge difference. And one of the things that I was most proud of is having Zambian readers say to me, this is a book for the world, but it's also very clearly a book for Zambians because there's all of these Easter eggs that are just for us. They're, they're things that are so recognizable to us and the book that the book feels Zambian to me is, is you know, almost the, the, the best thing I could hope for it. I really wanted to capture the quiddity, the specificity and the, the eclecticism of my country, which is, again, has always been cosmopolitan, has always included people from many, many different cultures and places, but has also included within its own space, seven main tribes, over 70 different dialects, all of this, all these different cultural forms coming together um, in a way that I really did want to imitate with my use of genres. That is so delicious. And I need to, to swing our conversation toward current events, and I was trying to think of a way to ask you about them. And one idea that surfaced from going back to the old drift is this idea where you bring us, which is revolution, political revolution, you know, making the questions of power explicit. And that is a preoccupation with a lot of fiction, with a lot of storytelling, throwing off the oppressor. And as I, as we watched last Wednesday on January 6th, the people invade the capital of the United States. I wondered about their notions of insurrection and their notions of, of throwing off power and if in a strange way there was a there was that story in that mob i mean i think the word mob is the telling difference i think the desire for people to come together as one as a mass as uh, a group and demand rights and throw off the shackles of power, whether it's in the form of imperialism or capitalism or, you know, domination. That's a, that is a human impulse. And we've seen a long history, you know, since the French Revolution of 
attempts to codify that in the form of declarations of independence uh, and also to make it clear that the people have the power, right? I think the difference lies in the method and I think the difference lies in the, how do I put this, the reach of the freedom being called for. A mob wants it's, uh, wants to overturn power for its own sake. A mob is essentially selfish. A mob is not interested in freedom for everyone. It's interested in freedom for itself. And I think that is the major difference to me. So while it might look like the throwing off of power in, you know, in, in as an echo of the kind of protest movement that I talk about in my novel, mm -hmm. I think it has behind it a different motivation. And I think the use of violence to harm other people in order to reach that goal sets it apart. When you said a difference in method, I was thinking and motive. Yeah. The interior life not might not be that different. Like I'm on the side of good for someone in that mob, mm -hmm. but the motive is not to include, but to exclude. Exactly. And I think this is, uh, you know, the, if you think about um, the revolutionary movements for universal suffrage, for, uh, you know, the abolition of slavery, for the destruction of apartheid, these are movements that want to be, they, they are in the name of a radical inclusion, not a radical exclusion and not, you know, the taking over uh, of power is not the same thing as a revolution that would level power and give it to everybody, right? So, I mean, this is the definition of a coup. A coup is I'm taking power from another group of, of people and it's essentially just kind of the same thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt, it's an eye for an eye kind of mentality. Whereas I think the method and motive of true genuine political revolution um, is to do away with power altogether, is to, is to actually give us every single person the equality and freedom that they deserve. Um, so I think, yeah, inclusion versus exclusion is is the exact axis along which I would dif differentiate the motives of the kind of revolution in my book and the kind um, that we saw just last week. Thank you for that clarification. I, it helps me personally. Yeah. I um, have to say that um, I did want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your brief but spectacular three and a half minutes for public uh, broadcasting because that has been a wellstone of joy for me in the uh -huh. sense 
of a wellstone of perspective. Um, mm. I love, love, love what you did with your Twitter handle to gesture toward that. So do you mind telling our listeners what you said? So when I first moved to this country with my family in 1989, uh, I was exposed to science fiction for the first time in a reading group for you know gifted readers, uh, having had a, a, a Zambian education that had my, my reading level um, above that of my American compatriots. I was put in this gifted reading program when we read a book called The Tripod Trilogy, which was about these uh, giant, three-legged machines that turned out to be controlled by three-legged alien creatures. Um, so two tripods, <laughs> two, set, two sets of tripods. And I learned that these were called aliens, that they came from a different planet. Uh, and I was eight and a half or so. So this was all very, this is all news to me. <laughs> and then I received in the mail um, what were called our resident alien cards, our green cards. And so I thought, oh, we're we're aliens. Oh, what does that mean? And how does that work? <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I I learned very early that this science fictional concept also weirdly applied politically to me and my family, and it became clear to me probably after we moved back to Zambia for a year in 1995 for my parents' work and for my mother's dissertation research, that I was an alien in Zambia now too, that I, I had taken on enough American culture and I had assimilated enough um, that I now felt no longer at home, even in my home country. And it's only a few years after that, that I began to realize that this was actually an advantage that it wasn't the dire, lonely, exclusionary space um, that most people think of it as uh, a kind of homelessness or a nomadism that keeps you always on the edges or always marginalized, as we say, but rather it was a way of taking perspective, having a different point of view on cultures that I was both inside of and outside of. And so this idea of alienation as a, as a negative thing, um, I managed to, as, as I suppose in my novel, uh, I do with, with the concept of error, uh, I managed to, to think of it actually as a creative space um, and a, a version of, of perspective taking that was incredibly useful for my art and also for my analysis of American literature as a college professor, for example. So in that sense, I, you know, I, I gave this brief but, but spectacular um, kind of, I guess it's a, I guess it's a, a little, a little movie <laughs> um, in which I try to present this thesis that we can think of, of difference and being um, outside of a culture or being both within and outside of a culture as, an, as actually a kind of advantage um, if seen from the right perspective. And so I, I combined my, uh, my name with the word alien to um, exemplify this in my Twitter handle, so, which is at Namwalian, um, which is also handily a kind of, um, you know, I think the, 
the highest compliment for an author is to have their name become an adjective like Kafkaesque <laughs> and Namwalian um, also kind of describes uh, a way of looking at the world. And so hopefully one day that will be famous enough to, to, to have its own, uh, its own adjective. Well, in the meantime, thank you for inviting us into the embrace of the alien as something creative and gestational and the old drift is exhibit A. Thank you so much. I really, I, I, as I said before, I really feel seen and uh, receiving an award like this that is really about the innovative ways that we can start to think about race and ethnicity um, and diversity in the 21st century. I feel very honored to, to participate uh, along with my co-winners in that ever, everlasting struggle to, to understand the human race. The Asterix is brought to you by the Cleveland Foundation. The executive producer is Alan Ashby with help from producers Tara Pringle Jefferson and Jay Williams of WOVU Radio. I'm Karen Long, manager of the prizes. Thank you for listening.